0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today is Stephen Galloway. He's author of Truly Madly, Vivian Lee, Lawrence Olivier, and the Romance of the Century, published by Grand Central Publishing and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. Stephen was executive editor and producer at The Hollywood Reporter and is now dean of Chapman University, Dodge College of Film and Media Arts. And Stephen, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much.
0: Well, given your background and your access to all kinds of research, why did you choose to write about these two stars from a particular period?
1: Um, There's a long-term reason, a short-term one. A few years ago, one of the things people don't realize is when you're working for a magazine, you're constantly searching for feature ideas. And this was a glossy, thick magazine, and we would have a weekly ideas meeting. And some of it would be business stuff and some of it would be profiles. But occasionally you want something beyond that. And every now and again I look and say, What anniversary is there? Something interesting happened 25 years ago or more. And I stumbled on the fact that it had been 50 years since Vivian Lee had died. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I dug around some more and found that. One of the museums in London, the Victorian Albert, had bought her archive, which also contained two hundreds of two hundred of Laurence Olivier's love letters to her. I thought this is a great article. So I went to London. And once I started digging in the archives, there was so much just in her archive. She preserved everything, letters from fans, photos from her childhood teenage diaries, which in the end proved to be extraordinarily revealing when I tried to find out when her first incident of bipolar disorder occurred, because as you know, she she had serious mental illness. And then I began to think this is a book. In the longer term, when I was growing up, people don't realize in, in America, Olivier was God in the theater. He just towered over British life. You know, in the way that Churchill has done in the 20th century, Olivier did in the arts. And I knew people who knew him. A mentor of mine was one of his very close friends. And so even as a teenager, I was fascinated by him. So you have this simmering interest that had lingered for decades. And then the thing that triggered it, which is the archive.
0: And the fact that they're connected, that made it, I'm sure, the icing on the cake or the cherry on the top.
1: Well, they were connected. And as I really began to work on it, and you also have to realize a book like this is four years of work. And as I began to focus on it more, I thought this isn't a double biography. It's the biography of a marriage. It's an an exploration of the 20 years when they were married and the extraordinary time when they ran away together, left husband, wife, children, fled in the middle of the night to the time when finally, I think her mental illness just proved too much. And he eventually left her, much to her heartbreak.
0: It's a fascinating story. Did you decide to frame it a certain way? Because as you said, it's the marriage, it's that connection that frames the story, not them individually. Did you decide on that? After the research or during the research or in the very beginning when you realize this wonderful trove of material?
1: I really decided it when I'd done the first draft of the book. And I looked at it and showed it to three or four people. If any writers are out there, you don't want too many cooks, you know. (laughs) Choose just a very few that you really trust who won't help you write the book that you want to write. You know, a lot of editors and critics, and I've been guilty of this, tried to tell you, ah, this is what I want you to do, and it's actually not what you want to do. But the ones who are also tough enough that they'll help you get there and be ruthless in what they say. And I showed the book to four people, and they split down the middle, and two of them said the first 80 pages, the first five chapters, terrific and two of them said they're really slow and I thought no this isn't two biographies and I really thought about it and finally agreed with the ones who said cut because I thought this is the biography of a marriage let's get to the marriage quickly and let's leave it quickly and that became the frame of the book I also really wanted to explore what nobody else had done, which is the effects of mental illness, not on one person, but on a a relationship. And that was what was most new about the book. Other people have written biographies of both of them, some pretty good ones, but nobody had the advantage of really being able to speak to the leading experts in the bipolar realm. Because a lot of work has been done here. And I spoke to the heads of the Bipolar Disorders Clinic at Stanford, the head of psychiatry at Oxford University. It was fascinating and sad.
0: I think what makes your book different is you're not just telling the story of the marriage of two major stars of a particular era, but you are also approaching a topic which has been addressed, but not necessarily within the context of Hollywood, which is mental illness. And the fact you were able to get experts to contribute to the book, and as well as the research you found in London, really makes it special. And a side question in a way, but did the studio system contribute to their problems at all in terms of the marriage or the relationship?
1: Oh, no question. Um, Success (laughs) contributed to their problems. You know, everyone wants to be rich and famous. There are problems associated with that, too. They were working nonstop. They were separated a great deal. And the stress of the work they did really affected Vivian in particular. Gone with the Wind was an absolutely exhausting shoot. And at one time, it tipped her over the edge to such an extent that her assistant wrote to Olivier. He was away; he was doing a play on the East Coast and said, I'm afraid that Vivian is on the edge of madness. Mm. And later, when she did Streetcar Named Desire on stage, she did it on stage before the film she said, this tipped me into madness. So the work they did absolutely contributed. On the more practical level, she was tied up with a very long contract to David O. Selznick, the producer of gone with the wind, and the two battled for years and eventually Selznick sued and lost in a British court. But it made it very hard for her to do other things. And so you had her mental illness, you had the separations, you had the stress of the work, and then you had this other phenomenon, which was when she met Olivier, he was sort of a matinee idol, just beginning to make a name for himself. And by sheer force of will, he transformed himself into the greatest living actor, and his career began to dwarf hers. And it's very hard for two actors to be together, because... Even though you want to support your spouse, you can't help but look in the mirror and say, "Oh, how come I'm not doing so well?" You know, first she was the one in a way when you know she got the Oscar for Gone with the Wind. He was jealous, <laughs> he was furious, livid, <laughs> and he wanted to crack her over the head with it. <laughs> Luckily, he didn't. But later, he just became this transcendent figure, and she got left behind. And I think a real turning point was when they were on stage together in London he would do a lot with her, he really supported her and the great critic Kenneth Tyman who was also very mean said he stoops on stage to be at her level must have been the most awful thing to read but it lodged in his mind and I think at some time he realised if he was going to Moved to the next phase of his career. He couldn't do it with her. She was a glorious movie star. He wanted to be the greatest actor on the stage. And it's very interesting because Olivier constantly reinvented himself. He was a not very prepossessing youth who became godly handsome. He was not gifted at Shakespeare, who became the most famous Shakespearean. He mangled his lines. And developed the most beautiful voice anyone ever heard, and went from being gangly youth to godlike young matinee idol to Shakespearean to living this life as a kind of lord of the manor. They bought this medieval abbey that they transformed into this incredible house, and it sucked up all their money. And then at some point in the late 50s, he'd played out that role. And he didn't want to be Sir Lawrence Olivier, you know, the master of the West End. And there's this amazing moment. He's about to shoot a movie with Marilyn Monroe, complete disaster, the prince and the Showgirl. They hated each other, hated. And Arthur Miller comes to London with her, you know, her husband, the great playwright. And he says to Olivier, Oh, I want to go to the theater. There's this play I heard about called Look Back in Anger. Look Back in Anger was a transformative watershed play in British theater. The first one that really made working class young men and women the center of everything, made characters full of hate, the heroes. And Olivier says, oh, dear boy, dear boy, you don't want to go see that. It's just this, you know, awful anti-British Miller says, No, 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 I want to see it. So Olivier goes with him. And halfway through, Olivier, who was not intellectual, but was very canny, turned to him and said, what, what do you think? And Miller said, Well, it's got flaws, but this is the real thing. And our, this was playing in a shabby little theater, not in the West End, which is our version of Broadway, but off, off, off. It's called the Royal Court, but there wasn't much royal about it. <laughs> was a dump <laughs> and afterwards they go and have a beer with the playwright who's this long-haired you know youth. remember the 60s are on the verge of happening probably hasn't had a bath in weeks <laughs> and olivier, and his name was john osborne and olivier turns and said says i say to boy you wouldn't have a play for me would you <laughs> and osborne writes the entertainer and olivier turns his back on his life leaves the West End, the money, the distinction, and for £50 a week, which is nothing, which is what he got paid for his first job, goes and plays the character that is maybe his most memorable on the stage from that point on, Archie Rice. Down and out British vaudevillian, a man of no talent, a has-been, washed up. And it was fascinating because here's Olivier on the point of being named Lord Olivier, married to the most beautiful woman in the world, playing a washed up has-been. And he said, at the time, this is me, isn't it? Extraordinary line.
0: Isn't that what artists do though, recreate themselves?
1: Great artists, not good artists. Good point. Good artists, even even more than that, I think have one thing, And you can see many, many, even great artists who have one thing, you know, a Klimt painting is recognizably a Klimt, but the greatest go through their blue period and their rose period and their cubist period. There are very few who reach that level. And
0: always their alcoholic period.
1: And (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, that's another issue with the Olivia's because they drank like fish. And I've seen all those, you know, tabs they kept for the bills. And a lot of people, when Vivian Lee was going through her manic and depressive phases, said, oh, it's just the booze, because she drank, even by those standards, a massive amount. But it was more
0: than that. It is amazing. And the fact that she originally saw him on stage, that's how she first connected with him. And I think 1934, a friend brought her to see Olivier in in a production.
1: Well, there are two things that are amazing. Remember, he wasn't Olivier yet. He was Larry Olivier, you know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Good old Larry. (laughs) Right. Good old Larry. And a friend comes to see Larry. And it's a comedy in which he was spoofing the Barrymores. And she turned to a friend and said, I think she was 21. She turned to her friend and said, this is the man I'm going to marry and as you know, there was a small problem. She already was married. Yeah, had with children too, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so was he. And she saw something that others didn't. She knew. And she never, ever, ever stopped believing that he was extraordinary. She had a smaller talent, and yet she's the one who endures on film, not him.
0: She does endure with so many films. I think it was, 19, if I remember, that were released over her career. So it wasn't as many movies as some actors are in, but Gone with the Wind, Caesar and Cleopatra, just a bunch of different films that she's known for. And as you say, she endures, and he does not necessarily have that staying power. No, you and, and I've alone.
1: heard people who knew him well and loved him say when you see the films, he sometimes comes across as hammy. On stage, he was just electric. First of all, his voice was extraordinarily projected and had a greater power than any other actor. But he he also could control it. But more than anything, he knew how to read an audience and could adjust and alter as the game changed. You know, when he did Hamlet, he wasn't a natural Hamlet on stage. He was too robust. And... They'd rehearsed it a certain way, and the moment he came on, he, and he was he was playing Hamlet as a young man shortly after John Gielgud had played the definitive Hamlet. So here he is, sort of matinee idol, daring to take on Gielgud's mantle. And there is a theory that great artists, you know, Harold Bloom, the great critic, came up with this idea that great artists pick on another great artist not to emulate but to go against. And Gilgood was effete, spoke poetically, and Olivier reacted against him. I'm going to be muscular. I'm going to be real. Manly. Ma- yes. And so he does his Hamlet and the audience is against him and he knows it. And in the moment he realized he threw out everything, changes the performance, starts coming to the front of the stage to be right there with them and turned the whole thing around. He had that ability. he also could control a speech, you know, hold his he could let out a breath for four minutes without without taking another breath. So he was extraordinary on stage, not on film. I love some of the later films like Marathon Man, you know, but not she, on the other hand, registered in, on film in an amazing way if you see some of her late films like "Ship of Fools mm-hmm. There's a moment in where she hits Lee Marvin, and you think, my God, is she actually really hitting him? You know?
0: <laughs> she, she did some interesting ones, uh, Yank and Oxford, uh, Hamilton Woman, and, and others. But do you think that her main claim to film immortality would be Gone with the Wind?
1: No question. And to some extent, Streetcar Named Desire. Right. But you know, Gone with the Wind... Like it, dislike it, criticize it as we must, because it, I think, did a massive amount of damage to the public perception of slavery. And even at the time, there were protests. You know, this isn't, you know, historicism. This isn't us coming back using modern judgments. There were protests. There were letters written from the head of the NAACP to Selznick. They did take out a rape scene. But still, the idea is these slaves were happy, and they were devoted to family, and they were loyal servants with no need for their own lives or problems. It dehumanized them. And that film was seen by more people than any other film around the world. And of course, it came you a few years after, two decades after The Birth of a Nation, which you know, presented the Ku Klux Klan as the heroes of American life. So it did massive damage, but it is still an iconic film, an extraordinary character, and will be remembered as long as there's film.
0: So you don't think a current, and I emphasize current, current cancel culture will have an effect on the quote-unquote immortality of that particular film? You know,
1: we're at this broiling moment where, you know, in revolutions, people's heads get chopped off. And maybe after, you say, well, we could have put her in prison instead. You mm-hmm. know, we're at that moment. So it's very hard to take that film and isolate it. But I think in years to come, maybe people say, let's look at this in context and let's point fingers to what it did badly. But it's still a film that sweeps people up.
0: Yeah, it has- I'm
1: in favor of screening it, but sort of with caution and with a warning.
0: That it may not be to everyone's liking in that sense. But you you don't want to have the Red Guards mentality where every film is destroyed because it may have an element. No,
1: these are really difficult decisions. I mean, my mother's a Holocaust survivor. Do you screen uh, Lenny Riefenstahl's films? Well, I say yes, but with a warning, you know, so that no one's going in with the wrong idea.
0: I wonder if it's a warning or just an advisory. I, I don't have a problem if you're advising someone Right before a film, that the scene may contain blah, blah, blah. But I don't like the idea of a warning in the sense that I think it diminishes the audience's intelligence. I think you can just simply have a a guidance that says, hey, there might be some scenes in here that will be offensive. But, you
1: know, I I really don't know. And it's very difficult. But, you know, I run a film school at the moment. And what do we show? What not do we show? And I tend to be in favor of free speech. And yes, an advisory but advising you about what? You know, if the advisories, be warned, there's nudity and foul language, that's easy. But be warned, there's a depiction of slavery that is horribly outdated and racist. And who chooses that? warning? Is, it's hard, and yet there has to be something, I think, because younger audiences in, in particular, and maybe, you know, foreign audiences are not as aware of those issues as, as I'd like them to be. I've actually, as it happens, I've read a great deal about slavery. And it's a horrible thing to romanticize, you know.
0: What surprised you the most in your research? You mentioned you went to London and there's a treasure trove of material, and you might have been able to talk to people who, through second hand or third hand, knew both of the principles. I did,
1: yes. And what Oh, was- I, knew. I I spoke to people who knew them very well. When I was growing up, my great mentor was one of Olivier's very best friends. And so, you know, one of the great questions f- for a modern is, was Olivier bisexual. And suddenly, I think my editor would have liked me to say yes, because it fits more in with modern times. But this friend of mine who was gay, very openly gay in the 1970s, and, and was one of the 10 people that Olivier left mementos to, when he died, always said he wasn't, and he knew. There was talk about Olivier, you know, having a long relationship with Danny Kay, not true at all. And I'd asked my friend about that. He said, you know, once they were drunk, they all fell into bed together. Somewhat different thing. Was he on that spectrum where as a young man something may have happened? Yeah, quite possibly. But there's a lot of evidence about all the women he had affairs with. <laughs> You know, so wouldn't say that was a surprise, but it was interesting. I think for me, the, the, the biggest surprise, and it won't necessarily interest outsiders, but it's interesting in terms of biography, was he always said the pivotal event of his life was when his mother died when he was 12. And to my surprise, I discovered there was another pivotal event that happened when he was four, which is his father, who was this very zealot-like country parson who then went to work in the London slums, got fired, and started traveling around the country with the family, living in these shabby boarding houses in the hottest summer in British history. And they're all melting in the heat, and the kids are screaming, there's no money. And the trauma of this was horrible. No money, unemployment, parents yelling at each other, three kids in one room, and it's 100 degrees plus. The tar was melting from the streets. It was that hot. People were dying in the streets. So, what's fascinating is Olivier had no memory of this thing that shaped his life so much. And the only reason we know about it is his sister wrote an unpublished biography of him and mentioned this summer. She actually got the year wrong. And when I was doing my due diligence and checked the year, it wasn't when Olivier was five, it was when he was four. And I thought, how extraordinary it is that the things that shape our lives may be ones we know nothing about or have no memory of.
0: Were you satisfied with both of the subjects of the book in the sense that you had so much material to work with and you probably could have written? twice the size of the book? Were you satisfied with what you finally shaped it into after you you gave it to a couple of friends to look at and critique, and you changed the direction after that? Are you satisfied with what the final product is? I know that's almost a self-serving question for a self-serving answer, but I think it's important in the sense that you had so much material to work with, and you had to reshape it after your initial writing of it. Are you currently pleased?
1: You've asked many variations of the same question. I know. And the answer is very simply <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know if any writers ever really pleased. No, all I do is see what I didn't what I failed to achieve. And that I walked away cool. thinking it's shallower than I would like it to be, it's less original. And you know, it's very hard to go back and read it because all I see is how far it fell short. As a writer, I'm very comfortable with narrative and my ability to tell a story. But I look at the whole and think, what great point about life does it make? One of my friends who's a writer, Nick Kazan, wonderful screenwriter, said to me, what question does this piece of writing answer philosophically? And I wish I could say I had a deep question and a deep answer. That would seep through everything. And I don't. And so all I can think of is, I fell short. You know?
0: <laughs> well, that's very honest and I appreciate it. But the subject matter is so fascinating. The subjects are so fascinating that even if you didn't attain what you felt you could, I think it breathes new life into their lives in a sense and gives people who may not even have been alive at the time to get a sense of these people. And I think from that point of view, it's successful.
1: Thank you. Um, there's another thing, which is the great conflict when you're writing. There's the conflict between narrative and truth. And the truth is messy and complicated and grey and blurred and contradictory. And narrative is clear and straight. And so the stronger the narrative, the more it's pulling you away from the truth. And yeah,
0: it's a balancing act, isn't it? Isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. You know, you define a character and it's clear and simple, but people change all the time. By the way, one of the most interesting things when you're reading diaries and letters is you actually see how people were at a particular slice of time. And which, if we look back on our lives, we create our own narrative. That was the year when I discovered so and so, it's often wrong. It's rarely complete, and when you're looking at actually reading somebody's diary and their letters, you can actually see what they were like and how much they changed. Olivier, in particular, went from being a quite shallow, very selfish young man to a much darker, more complicated, and deeper figure in his middle years.
0: Well, I think you're writing about human nature and human nature on a certain level that most of us don't experience. And I think from that point of view, you you succeed.
1: Thank you. But I'm also aware that in defining somebody, in doing a portrait in that moment, like a painting, five minutes later, that person might change. You know, you're saying from this perspective, that is how somebody seems, but we're all so contradictory. You know, sometimes it's funny because I'll, I see some students, and oh my goodness, they look up. I look up at the dean, or oh, you have this best-selling book, you know, and you, and and they, they're not seeing you. They're seeing one facet of one moment, and then you go home and you're irritated, miserable, impatient, you know, and uh, what argue with your friends, or and you, you know, or you're petty, and this is also all of us have all these colours, but if you put one in in one. Sense you, you lose narrative. You could maybe do what Virginia Woolf does and go into 24 hours in somebody's life or even one hour. Say, so this is everything this person experiences consciously. There's a great line that I quote in the book by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which is everybody has three lives the, the public, the private, and the secret. But you could add, everybody also has a private life that they don't know themselves. And how do you tap
0: that? You've given us a lot to think about, and I appreciate it, and it's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Stephen Galloway. He's author of Truly Madly, Vivian Lee, Lawrence Olivier, and the Romance of the Century, published by Grand Central Publishing, and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. Stephen, thanks for being on the show.
1: Truly a pleasure. I really loved speaking to you.
0: Same uh, here. Same here. Very,
1: very wonderful interviewer. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.